Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Car sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Is everybody in? Everybody in. The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek, 121239, position. Name, occupation? Uh, Jim. On the day, you know the day destroys a night. Night divides the Signs day. Signs are being chosen. The planet is screaming for change, Morrison. We've got to make the myths. Oh! You need to say the first shaman invented sex. Break on through to the other side. They call him the one who makes you crazy. Jim Morrison, the god of rock. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? Girl, we couldn't get much higher. I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. Try drinking blood. Mr. Morrison, you've gone too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What you gonna do for act three? say I was testing the bounds of reality. And now, direct from Los Angeles, California, ladies and gentlemen, here now, the door. Set the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Hey, everybody, this is Mark Farner, the founding member of Grand Funk Railroad. And I'm listening to Nostalgic Radio in Cars, where they'll knock you alive. Welcome, you're tuning in to Nostalgic Video and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com and see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, how many you got now, Bobby? 500 what? Mm, 36, 7, Some, something, something like that. that. You can go to Nostalgic Video and Cars. Dot com, right, Bobby? Mm-hmm. Something you like can. That. It's you a can. nice website. You'll nice... enjoy it. Every yeah, minute yeah. of it. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I can good guarantee evening. it. <laughs> good evening, Bobby. How are you? Good evening. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Tommy, how are you doing there behind the COVID uh, almost 21, 2021 uh, glass window over there? I'm doing lovely, ready to rock and roll. Ready to rock and roll. That's yes, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we are a rock and roll show now. Actually, we're still, we're nostalgic. We're humble. So I'm going to sit nostalgic. in front of this part of the banner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do both. We have another delightful, uh, I should say delightful, a really uh, rock and roll guy coming with us here in a little bit. And uh, yes, rock and roll rules. And um, But anyway, so uh, let's see. What do we got as far as, uh, well, we got the, if you want to find out where all the car shows are, where do they go, Bobby? Yep. When, uh, yep. FLACarshows.com is the place to go. Yep. Find them all over Florida, on the computer, wherever. Yeah. And then there's also some great literature there. So if you don't find, and great articles. So if there's no shows going on in your area right now, which there may or may not be, there's plenty to read. Yes. Now, I was uh, just watching, you know, I kind of surfed the uh, social media scene once in a while, and I saw that our good friend, former uh, guest uh, Alex Berry, was uh, down in West Palm Beach for the Palm event. Now, that takes place in West Palm Beach, and the show field is actually Mar-a-Lago. And uh, now, normally, the, the only other time they have a car show in Mar-a-Lago is when they do the... Uh, um, Cavallino. So it's primarily Ferraris, but the Cavallino, the concourse is actually a little bit of everything. So whether you got Ferraris, Porsches, Maseratis, Mercedes, Delhaye, Delages, Rolls Royces, all that kind of cool stuff, Aston Martins, a lot of really neat stuff. But yeah, it was a pretty good show. A lot of late model supercars were there. And um, But uh, there's a video of it on Facebook. So uh, kudos to Alex for getting out there and doing that. Now, as far as the 2021 shows coming up, actually, last weekend was a. Uh, Let's see, what was last weekend? Street Rod Nationals. I completely forgot about that. That was in Tampa. And the uh, swap meet, something kind of swap meet. Leadfoot Cities is in two weeks. Um, this week, I think there's a Volkswagen car show in Ocala. Just stuff that I kind of clue into a little bit. And then for uh, starting in uh, January, obviously, Kissimmee, Meekum will be there. Barrett Jackson, I'm getting all the literature on that right now. So uh, only a handful of events have been postponed until 2022, oddly enough. Amelia Island's on. Uh, we will definitely be there for that. Uh, anyway, I think what we're going to do right now is we're going to go ahead and fire up the stereo. And we're going to get our guests on the line here because we got a really sensational... Native, well, he's not really native Florida, but he lives in Florida now. Rock and roll guy coming he's on. Been here it's, long enough to be converted. Yeah, he's been long. Yeah, he's been here long enough. So uh, I'm delighted to have this, uh, this gentleman on our show, and uh, we will be right back. Don't touch that dial, and 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 Tommy's going to drop the needle in the groove. Did you ever take a look to see you're still around? Everyone I thought was cool is six feet underground. You know they're trying to give me lots of times Now they're coming after you I got out and I'm here to say Maybe you can get out too Yeah, yeah Still alive and well Still alive and well Every now and then I know it's kind of hard to tell But I'm still alive and well It only brings me down Let's make love in the grass While the sun is shining down Feels so good Your long blonde hair Baby, when you're way down low Make me shake Make the whole earth quake So everyone will know Yeah, yeah Still alive and well Still alive and well Every now and then I know it's kinda hard to tell But I'm still alive and well Yeah, yeah Still alive and well Still alive and well Every now and then I know it's kinda hard to tell But I'm still alive and well Okay, we're 
we're back, and it's time to introduce our very special guest for the evening. This gentleman is, and as they say, dynamite comes in small packages. This guy is legendary. He's a rock star. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. It's the amazing Rick Derringer. Rick, how are you? Welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Oh, it's good to be here. I, I was just listening, going, man, I've heard that song somewhere before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you'd appreciate that one. And there's a lot of truth to that song in the lyrics. Tell us a little about it. Well, when I wrote the song, well, the, the quick story is I was riding in a cab going somewhere. I lived in Manhattan at the time, and I, I wrote the song in the back seat of the cab between my uh, destinations. <laughs> but uh, the long story is I had been playing with Johnny Winter, and, and uh, you know, I loved him. Good, good guy. And he had checked himself into a hospital for his drug problems to get past them and get them behind him once and for all. And um, I thought he'd need a song when he got out to tell everybody his state, his, his new state of mind. And that song I wrote was called Still Alive and Well. And then since then, um, as a Jesus-following Christian kind of guy that I am, I've uh, re-visualized the song with new intent, um, Jesus Christ is risen up from heaven to the gra- from to heaven from the grave, and he's still alive and well. So, uh, still alive and well, and still as pertinent as ever. Well, I'll amen to that. I will agree with you 100%. Now, I sent you a couple questions. I don't know if you got a chance to look at some of those, but I have a whole list more. So do you want to start with those questions, or do you want to— uh, Start with anything you want to start with. Anything. Well, now, I, I was listening to I Typically, when I have a guest on the show, I kind of try to do my homework a little bit, and I try to find out a little bit about it. Now, you're relatively young and influenced by your uncle, um, who was kind of, uh, kind of responsible for you getting into the guitar world, so to speak, right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, one of the guys, after you were playing for a few years, one of the guys that left a, a, a huge impression on you was a gentleman by the name of James Burton. Yeah, yeah, I love James Burton, too. Um, my uncle brought a guitar into our kitchen. We were uh, not wealthy people. We lived uh, near the railroad tracks in Fort Recovery, Ohio at the time. And uh, my uncle brought a little guitar amplifier and an electric guitar and plugged it in in my kitchen. And I was about eight years old at the time. And he started playing music. And that music um, had such an effect on me. Music is free. One thing everybody has to realize, music just floats through the air. You, uh, it, it goes out to uh, every ear that wants to hear it. But the best kind of music is the music when you've got two people together. When one guy is making the music and somebody else is sitting right there to hear the music. Much like concerts used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, my uncle started playing that guitar and and, uh, the music had that kind of effect on me. It was sending the message and uh, I was the receiver of that message and and, uh, I just immediately knew that I wanted to be a guitar player. I, I wanted music to be my language. Now, unlike a lot of people that, and I play a little guitar too, so I'm kind of a guitar fanatic myself. I mean, I stay below the seven frets, you know, in the first seven. So, but I'm and, it's and the op- most important ones to me. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, and open chords. Yeah, you know, pretty it's pretty simple stuff. But at any rate, and like you, I started at an early age. I started at ten. So, but unfortunately, I'm not that good yet. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, where I'm going with this is that. A lot of musicians are content writing a song, playing some music, but you wanted to become a super guitarist, and that's why I brought up James Burton, because in one of the interviews, you were talking about how great of a guitarist he was, so talk a little bit about that, what really, because you really want to master, you wanted to master the instrument. That was important to you as well. Yeah, well, when I started playing, you know, it was uh, 1956. Uh, some people call that the year of Elvis. And uh, Elvis's guitar player, a guy named Scotty Moore, great, great uh, innovator and, and one of the real groundbreakers in, in rock and roll. Um, but kind of a basic, cryptic kind of guitar player. Very good. Love Scotty Moore. But um, cryptic is a good word for him. And 
as I explored music and got more into rock and roll, I turned on uh, Ozzy and Harriet one okay. day, and the Ozzy and Harriet show always featured their sons, Ricky and David Nelson, and um, turns out Ricky decided he wanted to be a singer on that show and wanted, wanted to play some rock and roll himself. So um, they started playing. Every episode would, would have a, a new song by Rick Nelson, and his band included uh, James Burton on guitar. It was a great band. It had all, all the best studio players from uh, Hollywood at the time. Small band, but they were great players. But James Burton took that cryptic style that people thought previously was rock and roll, and he showed people it doesn't have to be so cryptic. It can be very smooth, and it can be very cool. And uh, that's what I'd turn in. I'd tune in to Ozzy and Harriet to see whatever Rick Nelson's new record was, but I didn't care so much about the record. I wanted to hear what James Burton had to say uh, musically. And I became a big fan of James Burton. I'm still a big fan of his today. When you uh, also used uh, kind of like um, an analogy, you said music is a language. Yeah. Go ahead that's and explain. A few minutes ago, that's the language I want to speak. Right, right. Um, and you all want to talk about that? Music is a language. It really is. Uh, here's the difference. Though languages, um, I guess they go back to uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, people were getting too familiar with one another, and then they were not after the right uh, motives. And so uh, the Lord kind of split them all up by creating all these different languages. And one of the funny things about languages is you can, in any country in the world, people can use spoken language, to lie. And uh, a lot of times they do. Uh, but music is a language that where you can't lie. You, um, it is a language. It's not individualized, this language for this country, this language for that country, this language. It's um, universal. It's, a, it's one language for every people. Every group of people, every person, every kind of person, uh, they all have music. They all have music. And the thing that makes music different is you can't lie. It communicates a message from my heart, when I play, to the listener's heart, whoever they might be and wherever they might be, whatever country they might be. And if, if my heart is honest and pure and it's speaking a, a pure message musically, uh, then that music is accepted and, and people feel warm and, and good and, and uh, they like it. And that means the message was received. But you can't take it. You can't, I can't go to some place and, and play some song and say, you know, they're going to love this and uh, see, oh, they didn't necessarily love it as much as I thought they would. Um, and that's the great uh, thing about music. It, it uh, can't be, you can't deceive people with it. You can't uh, preconceive it. Um, myself, I can't say this is going to be well-loved. Um, I only experience it when it happens. And uh, I love music. Um, in your early days, you had a lot of success with your first real band, the McCoys, and the song Hang On Sleeping. And of course, as a kid, and funny you mentioned 1956, because that happened to be the year I was born. So being 1965, I was nine years old, and I heard that song as well. And that song knocked the Beatles song off the charts, that particular Well, um, some some people, Rick Derringer fans, like to say, well, Hang On Sleeping knocked yesterday out of number one. It really didn't work that way. <laughs> oh, it really did? Okay, so what's the real door story? Yesterday, yesterday was number two on the uh, all the record charts. Okay. Well, Hang On Sloopy was number one. But in those days, uh, a Beatles song in number two usually meant that it was on its way up toward number one. And eventually that's what happened. Um, oh. Yesterday became a number one song, and um, so was Hang On Sloopy. Well, you have that. You have that to your credit, and that was that's the important thing. 
When you uh, teamed up with uh, Johnny Winters, you started out kind of like as a as a, was it like kind of like a like a backup band for him a little bit, or how did that whole that whole scenario play out? Well, uh, we we became his band. Um, okay. The um, he had a blues band, right? And they paid him a lot of money to become uh, an artist for Columbia and and. The blues records didn't turn out to pay off as much as the record company would have liked, and uh, he, they, the record company and the management were were saying, "Johnny, man, you should play. You're a rock and roller too. You should play more of that rock and roll style music and, and garner a larger audience." So they were in the process of thinking, "Well, maybe we can figure out a way to make this happen," and uh, that's when Johnny discovered me and and my band, the McCoys. And uh, he decided, well, for my very next record, we're going to use uh, the McCoys as the Johnny Winter Band. And the problem was the McCoys' name was already famous, and uh, it was kind of a kid's band is the way they looked at it. The business looked at it, not this legendary blues guy's band. So they couldn't really call it Johnny Winter and the McCoys, which is simply what it was. They had to come up with a name. They couldn't come up with a great name. So somebody said, how about just dropping a name altogether? Just call it Johnny Winter and. So Johnny Winter and the McCoys, which is what it was, became Johnny Winter and. So it was great that we became the Johnny Winter band, but uh, it kind of cheated the McCoys out of some of the uh, kudos that they should have received. When you, um, and you, and then you got, kind of hooked up with his brother, uh, Edgar. So did you kind of like play back and forth between, I mean, there was, obviously there was a synergy, there was a relationship there. And, and, and what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of bands were kind of like buds. And it's almost as a way as if you were kind of like garage bands in a way where you got to just kind of like went back and forth and, and it was all more or less about the music and jamming. Would that be kind of a fair assessment of kind yeah. of the way? Yeah, well, music includes jamming, and rock and roll certainly did include jamming. Blues certainly includes jamming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened was I was not only a guitarist and a singer, a part of a band, but I was also a record producer. I had started producing McCoy's records for the end of their life, and uh, Johnny chose me not only because he liked my uh, guitar playing and singing and performing and all that, but... He also noticed that I was a record producer, and he wasn't happy with his previous record producers. So I became his record producer as well. And while I was playing with Johnny, I also then started producing uh, some Edgar Winter music. I produced the first uh, Edgar Winter White Trash album. And so I was familiar with Edgar, and Edgar liked my work, but I was playing with Johnny. So um, when Johnny checked himself into that hospital and went away for a year and change, uh, Edgar called me up and said, I'm not totally happy yet with my guitarist and my band. Would you be willing to come over and play with me? So I I joined Edgar's band uh, in White Trash, and uh, we did the Roadwork album at that time, uh, which I produced as well. Roadwork was... uh, Fabulous album. That was a great band. White Trash was one of the best bands ever. Um, and the, the players all were individually super. And the band is one of my um, favorite experiences that I had. But once again, I was then kind of still betrothed to the Johnny Winter Band, but now playing with White Trash. So when Johnny got out of the hospital... Uh, that's when I wrote the song Still Alive and Well for his kind of re-emergence. Um, but I stayed playing with Edgar, and Johnny went ahead and, and uh, used Randy Joe Hobbs from the White Trash Band at that time. Um, and he continued his career with Randy for many, many years, until Randy died, as a matter of fact. Uh, but I kind of played with both of them during that period. Now tell us... Um um, as a, as a record producer, what are kind of like uh, if you had to kind of describe the job, the function, exactly what it entails? Tell us a little bit for our listeners and for myself also. Exactly what does a record producer do? Well, a record producer is uh, 
they they kind of make it maybe complicated sounding, but it's not really, because here's the idea. There isn't a record, and then at some point a record is finished. Okay. Now, everything in between those two points is the producer's responsibility. It, it could be all kinds of different things. It might be choosing songs. It might be helping arrange music. It might be helping write stuff. Uh, it might be uh, helping just kind of an overall image creation. Uh, certainly it involves all the kind of things like uh, the recording. You're there during all the recording, and you uh, make sure that those instruments sound the way you want them to sound, and the arrangements are going the way you want them to go. You choose the performances. Uh, then at some point you're involved in the actual mixing of the recording, and after that, the sequencing and, and uh, then mastering of the recording. And at some point you go, it is finished. <laughs> and who said that? It is the producer that said that. Okay, and that would have been you. Yeah. Now, did you, back in those days, you know, you always hear this term, well, you know, our band would have been more successful if we had played more commercial-oriented music. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to play our style of music. You know, the producers or the record companies said, you know, it's kind of like, and I'll use the 80s as an example. In the 80s, you had a lot of music that sounded alike. There really wasn't a lot of, I'm not going to say this in a bad way, but it wasn't like there was a lot of creativity, you know. And where I'm going with this is, is that a lot of people take licks from other songs and kind of tweak them just a little bit so they all have that same sound. Did you have any of that that you had to deal with back in the early days? Well, the producers of the McCoys wanted to create um, longevity. They wanted the success of their, their recordings to go on and on and on and on. And the way the traditional record business would have it is they'd try to copy that sound over and over and over again. Hopefully uh, the audience would like it again and again and again. But in the case of the McCoys, for instance, we didn't have that record business. We were young guys. I was a young producer, a young guy. I didn't have all that knowledge of the history of that end of the business. And I just became, and the rest of my band became tired of doing those same kind of, they called them bubblegum songs in those days. Um, I didn't want to continue doing that. Neither did my band. So at the first opportunity we had, we, we split from Bang Records and those producers. And, uh, in retrospect, it probably cost us a lot of record sales and a lot of money <laughs> uh, because they would have continued some kind of success like that for a long period of time. But we were less interested in recreating some kind of bubblegum sound as we were in being a um, totally new kind of band with new music and we thought we liked blues and we liked jazz and, and we liked all kinds of stuff. We liked classical music. We liked crazy music. In those days, we liked psychedelic music. So we wanted an outlet where we could explore all those possibilities. And uh, Mercury Records signed us to a label deal. We did two albums totally, with that way of thinking, totally crazy, totally, completely out of the mold of trying to make successful records. And just said, let's try to put out some really creative, wild stuff here, and which we did. And uh, it, we had some success, um, but it taught me a lot about how you create commercial kind of records. Uh, it taught me a lot of those lessons about the music business. And uh, I then went ahead and used a lot of those lessons as I became a producer and worked with lots of other artists. As a as a singer, songwriter, musician, and record producer, kind of like the total package, and I'll use this analogy in the racing world because we deal – the other part of our show is a lot of race car guys. So you have – and I'll use Roger Penske as an example. Here's a guy that was a driver. Here's a guy that was a wrench. Here's a guy that was a team owner. So he had the total package, the total understanding. In your case, it sounds like you had the same. The only element that you had to deal with outside of your creative part, so to speak, would be possibly, like you said, the record companies and a manager slash agent. Did you run in, did you feel that at times 
they did or did not have your best interest at uh, at heart? Because this is a question. You hear the story a lot through musicians. They say, well, we could have done better if we'd had a better manager. We got cheated by this guy. We got cheated by that guy. So what were your experiences, and, and what's your take on it? Well, those people that say that are probably right, is, is my take on it. Okay. Um, managers uh, on the highest level in the music business have power. Uh, unfortunately, what I've found is that power might be more, um, how can I say it, uh, satanic. <laughs> okay. It may be more destructive in the end than uh, you necessarily might want to go along with. So, uh, I mean, uh, managers that were very good for me, the manager of Johnny Winter that helped to get me in that Johnny Winter situation and helped me go ahead and become a producer for records with Johnny and Edgar and stuff. Uh, he was good as a business person, as a business manager, uh, but... I won't go into all the details, but he would rather of us go in a more uh, worldly fashion. And uh, Johnny Winter and I maybe have some kind of personal relationship that neither of us were interested in. Um, <laughs> uh, so we didn't go that route. And in, in the record business, that, that can cost you. I actually uh, had a guy come up to me one day at a guitar show. And he said, have you ever had anybody uh, offer you uh, uh, to make a deal with the devil? And I said, well, I haven't exactly had that, but I mean, we could go into the discussion about how that is done. And uh, y you can choose that route if you want to, but, uh, and it certainly guarantees success because this is the devil's world we live in. But um, it's not necessarily the route we want to take. And he said, well, I've actually been at a meeting, a party, where the band had a signing their agreement. We've got this great record deal, and we're signing our record deal, making a big party out of it. And they said they had the record company there, and the papers were all there, and they signed the thing, and they were in the, ready to do the toasts and, and say congratulations. And the record company said, no, we've got one other deal that you have to sign, too. It's like an addendum. And this other guy's going to bring that in for you to look that over. And he said that uh, this other guy brought this deal in, and he basically said that uh, if you adhere to this paper right here, we can guarantee you real success, uh, but you have to sign this deal. And as he explained it, it was specifically like a deal with the devil. Um, you, you sign your soul over. And we'll guarantee success. And the band said, well, I don't know if we can sign that deal. <laughs> uh, so the punchline, the bottom line of this story was the record company said, well, we then can't go ahead and honor our agreement. You have to sign that other deal as well. So I guess these things really do happen in, in real concrete black and white terms. I, I dealt with those issues in a more um, general fashion, uh, I can tell you all the ways, but uh, it's really out there. The, the major big superstars in this business, unfortunately, if you watch their videos and, and listen to their lyrics and stuff, uh, they've made certain kind of, whether it's that black and white or not, they've made deals that uh, they shouldn't necessarily be making. We should all be very conscious of the words that we say and the messages we give out to other people, because we are then responsible for what comes from those messages that we give out. So it should always be very positive stuff. I mean, you should be uh, very, very honorable and uh, not try to encourage people to do this wrong stuff. Having said that, uh, my next question would be kind of like this, or my comment would be, okay, you've been in the business for a long time. You've been very successful, and even in your own words, you mentioned one time, it says, I wasn't superstar, but I wasn't bottom. I was always kind of like, you know, steady Eddie, and I've always been there, and I've always been around. Would you say that because of your total understanding of the business and the industry that you learned relatively early on, and your prudence, okay, that you, as long as well as other 
musicians that have been around for, let's say, a long period of time kind of adhere to that kind of rule, exactly to what you were speaking earlier. Would that be a fair statement? Um, I, I'm not really sure what that means. I can tell you that I, if I had gone, uh, as I was encouraged too many times, and uh, gone the total, total route that the business encourages you to go in, mm-hmm. I would be probably even more successful, way more successful. Okay. Uh, like I said, I, I do have morals, and, and uh, I stand my ground, and, and uh, I won't necessarily follow their instructions if I feel like uh, they're, they're not complementary to the Word of God. Really, that, that's pretty simple. Yeah. So uh, I have success, and I'm very happy with the success I have, and I'm very uh, happy that I didn't compromise my morals to get the success that I have, and uh, that to me is more important than anything else. There, there, you know, it's one thing for people to begrudge other artists because they weren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for instance, or they didn't get this gold statue at this award ceremony and stuff like that. In the end, this, those kind of rewards are very fleeting. This life is like a vapor; it's going to be gone in the bat of an eye before you even know it. And you can't take those awards with you. You can't take the Hall of Fame with you. You can't take little gold statues with you. But if you are a good person, you're going to reap way greater rewards than those simple little gold statues and accolades from other people who may be uh, as wrongdoing as uh, the rest of them. (laughs) You just got to be honorable true to your own morals, and know that you will reap a great, great reward in an infinite place. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about guitars, because I just got a couple of uh, texts here, because people know that you are a guitar uh, collector, a guitar enthusiast, and I also heard that you used to roam around, besides Nam in Orlando, the uh, Orlando... International Guitar Expo, which we go to every year. Yeah. Well, I like those guitar shows. Yeah, I love guitars. To me, there's, like I said, I started playing guitar because I loved the guitar and wanted to play guitar. Uh, so nothing better to me than a new guitar. I don't gravitate towards those old vintage guitars. They become old guitars after a while. And I have a little collection, uh, uh, and it includes some of those kind of instruments. But uh, what I like is innovating with guitar makers and trying to create new instruments that are better, are better sounding, better playing than those uh, old guitars. Uh, but I, I still enjoy a, a good guitar show. They're, they're a fun guitar players. Nothing more fun than a guitar show. I think there was a video where you actually, some of your guitars were what? Because we've been to Nashville so at NAMM, so I think it was either Gruen's or Carter's. I think it was yeah, Gruen's. I have, I have some of my guitars uh, at Gruen right now. Uh, some of them have sold. Some of the more important ones have sold. Well, it depends on what you look at as importance. One of my favorite guitars was an ES-355 uh, Gibson guitar that I played all the tour with Ringo. And I played one just like it in the McCoys and, and uh, with White Trash. Uh, one of those, that is still at Gruen right now. It still hasn't sold. If there's anybody interested in uh, a famous guitar, that one, you've got plenty of pictures of me playing it with Ringo. Um, that one's still there. Um, the D'Angelico model, uh, it was made by a guy named Triggs, but it's a full-blown D'Angelico, one of eight that he made for the family after D'Angelico died. Uh, that one is there. I used that on the uh, album called Free Ride, my smooth jazz rig. And that's the one guitar I played on the whole record. Every every guitar on that record that you hear, and we had pretty good success on the smooth jazz charts, a top 20 song for uh, like six months or so nationally. Uh, but that guitar is still there for sale. And uh, I don't know, that, that might be the only two that are left. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I, I um, after they become old to me, then I look to uh, maybe letting somebody else enjoy them and I could get something else. 
Do you now? I'm more into the vintage guitars. I'm kind of a Fender guy, but I have a uh, an SG which I like. And um, but where I'm going with this is that you know to me, and I'm I'm a novice. A guitar, a vintage guitar, has a feel to it. Has a soul, where the newer guitars don't really have that. Now it's probably different. You've played you got the, the wrong guitar. You got, got the, the wrong <laughs> guitar. I got the wrong guitar. Okay, I'll take that. Well, but like for example, now yours. You played yours. Now you've put your spirit, so to speak, your soul into that guitar. Now when that guitar goes on, it now has a soul. It has a life. It has a story. It has history. It's it, yeah, that's it, true. And, and that's what I look for in a guitar. That means something to me, you know, where it's just hanging yeah, on the... Sh- but, like, uh, the guitars I, I am playing in the past uh, 15 years or so mm-hmm. are called Warrior guitars. They're handmade uh-huh. uh, by a Christian guitar company in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, actually Rossville, Georgia. And uh, they are anointed. They actually have a pastor come in and pray over the oil that's going to be used on the finish of those instruments. And then that anointed oil is used in the finish of the guitars. Uh, the instrument bodies are not uh, like a Les Paul, for instance, multiple pieces of wood glued together. They are one piece of wood, whatever the best sounding wood that you might, you can go pick it out yourself if you like that kind of thing. But they're one piece, no glue joints. Next, one piece, no glue joints. Um, the only glue that's used in a warrior guitar is uh, the Stradivarius style glue that made uh, his violin so great sounding. And uh, they use this, the old wood is uh, 200 years old at least, air dried. And uh, those guitars, if you look at it from that point of view, have more real uh, history and life and soul than a guitar that uh, it just happened to be 20 years old um, or 30 years old even. So these are these are pieces of wood that are 200 years old, and so to me they when you, when you get the right instrument, I love warrior guitars, but when you get the right instrument from them, you can't beat it. It's just best best playing guitars ever. I did like um, for a long time, but you can't find them anymore either. The um, B.C. Rich guitars, they were handmade by Bernie Rico for many years, and the originals were some of the best playing guitars ever made. Uh, God touched those instruments, too. Uh, but you can't get them anymore. They sold, when Bernie died, they sold the company to uh, a Korean enterprise housed out of Cincinnati, Ohio, matter of fact. And those people probably mean well. But they're, um, they aren't Bernie Rico, and they didn't have his touch, and they didn't know. To, you know they, they make good guitars in Korea, but they aren't the stuff that people, uh, sometimes some people are really blessed with the ability to know how to fashion an instrument. It says in the Bible that man was created, and it said that uh, Eve was fashioned. Uh, I like that word, because uh, really good guitars that have soul, like you're talking about, um, are fashion. And uh, the good guitar makers know how to fashion a great, great instrument. And the guy that makes warrior guitars, his name's uh, J.D., and uh, J.D. makes just fabulous guitars. And and there's no way you can say anything about them other than that they are fashion. Uh, Bernie Rico did the same thing. So, and when you use the term fashion, so you're you're referring to the guitar as a complete total package. So you're talking, you know, the hardware. You're talking pickups. You're talking tuners. You're talking pots. You're talking strings, bridge, the whole nine, vibrato, whatever you got on there, and and the shape and the neck and and how it's put together and and whether it's a rosewood or maple or or a combination. Uh, so that's your interpretation of fashion, correct? Yep. Okay. I agree with you. I, uh, you know, I, I look at some of these. When we were at NAMM, I was looking at some of the guitars. And, of course, I was looking at some contemporary stuff and some vintage stuff. And to me, guitars almost, it's a work of art. It really is. They it's are. A- they really are. And they're only, the, ma- the major component in a guitar is wood. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is, where can you get the best wood? At a guitar show, if JD is there looking uh, 
as part of the warrior team, first thing he'll do is the day before the show's open, he'll go to the people that bring the wood to sell to other guitar makers. And he wants to be the first guy with the first choice of that wood. And he'll pick out the best wood he can find and buy it right up so that it can be used to make more warrior guitars. And he gets it from wherever he can get it. I brought him a piece of wood that was almost 2,000 years old. And uh, it was given to me by a guy that said, you should make a guitar out of this. Uh, it was actually from almost the time of Jesus. Maybe it was. Who knows? Uh, and I said, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> Let's do it. So I sent the wood to J.D., and uh, he started to carve the wood to make the guitar. And we found out that the wood was so old that it became brittle, and it just broke apart. So uh, the best dreams sometimes can't come true. <laughs> Over the years, you've worked with some amazing artists, and you had a really good relationship, besides with the Winter Brothers, but also with Steely Dan. Tell us about that. Well, uh, yeah, I've worked with Steely Dan since the beginning. Uh, I was one of those guys that in New York City you could call up, a producer could call me up because I lived there, and say, hey, can you come up and help with this thing I'm working on? And one day I got a call from Gary Katz, who's the producer of Steely Dan, and he said, I'm working on this a demo for a pianist, piano player, singer, songwriter guy. He used to work with uh, Jay and the Americans. And um, he, would you play on his demo? I said, yeah, great. Sounds cool. So Because I, I liked him, because I liked Gary, I knew he did good work. So I went up, played on the demo. It turned out that demo was for Donald Fagan. And so uh, then they used that then to make, create the basis of what became Steely Dan. So I then went out on the road, so I didn't get to play on their first record. But uh, most of the Steely Dan records after that, I'm there in some capacity, whether it's just in the background playing parts with the whole band or whether it's sometimes playing solos that you can hear very clearly. But uh, Donald's been a good friend for a long time. Uh, got to play with him in concert just last year, one of the last concerts before this whole COVID thing started going crazy. Um, and it was great to see him, and, and his band was one of the best versions of Steely Dan I've ever heard. You have a connection with uh, Cindy Lauper and Weird Al Yankovic, too. Yeah, well, I discovered Weird Al. Mm -hmm. They brought me Weird Al and said, would you be interested in doing a single with this guy? And I explored what he had and, and uh, simply said, if he's got more material like this, um, there's going to be no competition, and he's going to be making albums and not singles. So that was the start. I, I uh, took my own money and created his first album without a record company. I had that much faith in him, and uh, then went ahead and got the record company. And uh, what I hoped and prophesied became true. He uh, was just an out-of-the-box instant superstar. I won two Grammys with Weird Al. I uh, produced his first six albums, uh, including his UHF movie soundtrack. <laughs> and uh, that, in some ways, led to my work uh, with the World Wrestling Federation. I had worked with Cindy Lauper. It's another similar story. I, I, she was playing with a band called uh, Blue Angel. And Blue Angel lost their record contract. I was asked to come and do some demos to help them get their contract back. Maybe the record company wouldn't drop them. And uh, I did that. And the record company still said, no, we still don't love the band. But we love that lead singer, who's she. And that, that was Cindy Lauper. So the record deal came from that. And that got me a, a relationship, a longer-term relationship with Cindy. I played with her on tour for a while. One of the cool ones that's on uh, DVD still is uh, Live in Paris, a great concert with Cindy. And then through Cindy, uh, her work with the World Wrestling Federation uh, introduced me to them, and that's uh, where I had the opportunity to uh, a platform for my song, I'm a Real American, which has been one of the biggest songs that's never been released as a single, uh, really, uh, of all time, probably. It's been used by four presidents, uh, well, four presidential candidates, <laughs> two presidents, and uh, Paul Hogan's theme song for the last 35 years. So these these relationships are great, and, and they're 
they're all based on music, good music. We have a minute or two left. If Of all the people that you've worked with, is there anyone that you would still like to collaborate with? Uh, I'd, I'd like to do something different with, with Weird Al. I'd like to do another song with Weird Al at some point. I think that would be really cool. Um, I'd, I'm, I'm now exploring the possibilities of, uh, I'd like to do a, I think there's a future for a, a new amalgam that we don't see anywhere, and that would be the emergence of uh, country music and rock. And, you know, we hear it when you listen to modern country. It sounds like they've already done that, but it hasn't really been made official yet. And I'd like to team up with maybe a, a cool country artist, somebody. Um, who knows? Okay. One more Tony thing. Key. One more quick. Uh, Patreon or Patreon. How do you pronounce that? Patreon? Patreon. Yes. Go ahead and give us a shout out there for them. And yeah. you're involved. Uh, YouTube um, became my nemesis for a bit. Um because if you go on YouTube and you punch in Rick Derringer, at one point, like 5,000 things would pop up, and you could go to any one of them, and one of the first things you have to sit through is the commercial yep. before the whatever the Rick Derringer content is, and I'm not getting paid for that commercial. They wouldn't let me monetize my own stuff. Uh, that's a long story about how they... Um, explain that but nonetheless it's the truth so i got disenchanted with them and i said i'm going to try to take down a bunch of content which i did took down a bunch of content but then i just said there should be a place where i can play my new stuff if i write a new song that nobody's heard yet where i can actually put it out there for people to hear but it's not youtube because youtube won't allow me to monetize it if i do it that way so uh, I discovered Patreon, and I started uh, the Patreon slash Rick Derringer site, and we have lots of content there, uh, songs that you can't hear anywhere else that have not been released to the world. They're not on YouTube. They're only on Patreon. We have travel logs. We have family stuff on there. We have just, you know, very personal uh, stuff on there. I have a music lesson up there right now. Uh, soon I'm going to put a couple more I have uh, in the hat here that I want to put on there too. Um, but it's, it's a cheap thing. It's a um, subscription site. You pay 10 bucks for a month and um, you get access to all of that content 24 hours a day whenever you want to watch it. It's available to you. Uh, and uh, there's no contracts to sign or anything like that. It's pretty cool. Well, Rick, we are up against the clock. I want to thank you very much for uh, hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Rhythm Cars. Look forward to seeing some of your concerts again. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, you got a Merry Christmas to you and a Happy New Year coming up. All right? Well, Merry Christmas to you and, and to uh, everybody that's listening. I just want to say God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. You take care, all right? I will. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you again. Hey, listeners, I, would, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgia Radio and Cars. Don't forget, it's uh, every Tuesday here at the Talk Radio Network between 7 and 8 p.m. for the most fascinating legendary names in motorsports. By the way, today is Jim Morrison's birthday. And he's born, you know, he used to live right down the street here in Osceola in Clearwater. Went to JC. But I want to see you guys some of the car shows, some of the concerts. Hey, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.